You are tuned into Intermission Conversations, a podcast series hosted by Intermission. I'm Jade Thacker, the director and co-founder of Intermission, where we curate artists and artist projects as radical alternatives to traditional DEIB and team well-being initiatives within organizations and companies of all sizes and types and industries. So if you're not already familiar with what we're doing at Intermission, we are creating bridges between artist labor and the needs of working communities that are interested in a more creative approach to learnings around diversity and inclusion and belonging. The artists and projects we represent work primarily in socially engaged art, which typically employs a workshop model and a highly participatory approach to learnings and making things together and evolving a sense of education. Today's episode features two amazing New York-based artists, Maya Chiaroki and Chris Gray. They are the co-founders of Gender Power, a project that lived on in wonderful capacity for how many years? Eight. That sounds right. I think it's been eight years. Eight years. Yeah. Up until very recently when you decided to take a break from this work for some time. So we'll definitely jump into that. But... Gender Power is a transgender and feminist-led workshop series and teaching methodology offering intersectional transformational tools that explore systems of power and their effects on our bodies. These workshops employ storytelling, mapping, and movement to question and reveal the dynamics of power in relationship to gender and gender perception. So I'm so happy you're both here today. Thank you. It's so nice to sit across from you both. Thanks for having us. A gift to be together in a real space. (laughs) Yes. In our real bodies. In real time. So typically I would use this platform of the podcast to actively discuss a workshop that Intermission is actively representing. And as we just mentioned, Gender Power has taken a hiatus for some time. And this time with you both today felt like a really interesting opportunity to shed light on what it means to be an artist in a collaborative process and the utter vulnerability that it takes to sustain a project of this nature, especially one that no doubt faces such extreme antagonism from our modern society. So I'm excited today to talk to you about some of the tremendous learnings and successes and tribulations in gender power and at large sort of this inherent tension between socially engaged art and capitalism. Projects founded in care and accountability often find fundamental friction with the tenets of a capitalist culture that prioritizes agenda fulfillment above all else, whether that's a financial agenda, the needs of a DEI agenda, and it's easy to get caught up in ticking boxes in a context when we're really just trying to be real and create more realness in the world. Socially engaged art at large calls for radical listening, which can lead to unexpected turns and curves and sometimes alt-right halting. 
So I would love to talk to you both about gender power, first and foremost, your experience with this work, some of its harder learnings. And ultimately, I hope that this podcast and our listeners can glean some of the knowledge and education and information on ways forward, especially as it comes to allies taking on more of the work. So, hello. Hi. One of the things that stands out so prominently about this work is its rootedness in a mindfulness practice Mm -hmm. and the cognitive and physical benefits of that. So I would love to hear you explore, explain what that is, Mm -hmm. how that related to developing this project and the tools within it. So... You want to kick us off? Sure. I mean, since we have been working on this project since really its inception was 2014 when Chris and I met. And it was not rooted in a somatic practice Mm. then. It was really more about an art installation and there were going to be bodies. And it was all about sort of the viewer and and the body and like... Mm-hmm. How what the bu- viewer brings with them when they perceive a body and then the story that comes from that body and how maybe there's a slippage between what you see and hear and what that conjures for the audience. And so mm-hmm. it lived as an installation and then it grew to be a performance, And but it was really about storytelling. So Sandra Parker was a choreographer that we worked with and she's Australian. She works a lot with this idea of somatics and how movement is generated from prompts and the prompts are often mostly in the body and they might almost seem impossible sometime. I remember one was like, move your top lip away from your nose, but it's not about actually doing it. It's just about the sensing of that and like what that might do to your face and your facial muscles. So from that, we kind of took that template that she made. And as we started doing more workshops, and we can talk about how we transitioned from performance to workshops as well. We took her template and then we made it our own Mm-hmm. added some things and then definitely as we sort of started moving to zoom like how do you do this in a digital space with people that are seated or people that maybe have bodies that need to respond to those prompts differently and that was you know we had a couple of failures and you know redos and learning we were constantly learning lots of learning lots of learning <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about how gender power came into being is that it it started as a friendship conversation. And most of the things that we started to target in terms of what we were curious about from one another had to do with some of the same intersections, which were about how other people perceived our bodies. Mm. When we started chatting around that just as friends, we found that we had a lot of similar experiences and overlapping experiences and that those experiences were also common to other friends and lovers and community members. And at that time, there were a lot of bathroom bills. I mean, we see that on a cycle as well. And so bathroom bills for, you know, who can use what bathrooms were very present at that moment as well. We've seen that shift and advance in terms of legislation 
legislating trans folks and gender nonconformity out of public life. But yeah, at that time, we were sort of talking about bathrooms. We talked about the ways that we were perceived. I myself am a trans person, so I have an experience of having passed in the world as female for 30 years. And when I was passing in the world as female, I was passing as a butch lesbian. So I was most assuredly on the masculine spectrum of, of mm-hmm. femaleness, if we can sort of mm-hmm. use, those, use those terms. But we had some similar experiences of passing as women who did not conform to femininity. Then we had overlapping experiences that had to do with changing perceptions about our changing bodies, not just my trans body, but aging bodies, bodies with short hair, bodies with long hair, our partners and our community members. And so we started to target those overlaps and really try to call them to the front. And we felt that if that intersection was so strong for us that there were probably other intersections. So we began in a way with like friends and people became friends of the project and we worked with folks for many years on and off as kind of core cast members when we're doing more outward facing work. I would say that something that is happening for me now personally as an artist is something that we have also experienced as a collaborative, which is that there's not necessarily like a gender power shaped professional role. Mm. We have shifted around and code switched between being a project that creates creative work for public display. Mm-hmm. Be that installation, be that live performance, even video work. So we've done that. And that sort of qualifies us as visual artists, and that qualifies us for a certain amount of support. When we're doing our workshop work, which is a way that we bent, we code switched into business people. We did a professional development program Mm -hmm. that was incredible and profound for the community building. The other folks that were in there with us have become dear friends, and I continue to use that work in teaching as well. Like I'm just constantly showing people work by those other participants at Gibney's Moving Towards Justice program. So we code switched into like business people and we wrote business plans and then we started trying to think about, okay, actually that turn wasn't necessarily only about funding or support, but really for us it was about like, okay, there's not like a totally like a gender power shaped visual art umbrella. There's Mm -hmm. not totally a, a gender power shaped corporate model. We have a workshop model that that we think is where the work happens. Mm-hmm. The meat of our work, the best part of our work happens when people have an authentic experience mm-hmm. in a well-designed container. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to make performances. It's great to make installations. It's great to make public-facing stuff. And when we asked ourselves those sort of tough questions that artists are always asking themselves, where's the work actually happening? It was really in the exchange. Mm -hmm. So then we were trying to find ways in which we could take what we had learned and apply it to different modes. So we've done workshops at arts organizations for creative practitioners. We've done professional development workshops. We've made sort of attempts at doing things at arts nonprofits and corporate settings. And each of those comes with its own sort of constraint Mm -hmm. or context 
And so the umbrella of this project, Gender Power, has basically allowed us to sort of code switch to try things out to see where it fits, to see where the work actually works. Mm-hmm. And the, I think this sort of prompt was about somatics. Mm-hmm. It was about like, okay, now we have a practice that's really rooted in connecting movement, storytelling, and listening. I would say listening is a major aspect of what happens in our workshop methodology because the feedback that we get or the outcome, the evaluative materials point to that. Mm -hmm. When people hear their story, for instance, like coming out of someone else's mouth, which happens through our methodology when there's a sort of performative outcome, Mm -hmm. not necessarily public facing, but often our workshops sort of yield a small performance that we do together for one another. So when that happens, we braid text together, and actually we give the text to the participants. They choose the things that are sort of resonating for them around main themes, and then they make a very generous and vulnerable offering by allowing other people to say their words. Mm -hmm. When they hear their words coming from someone else, something happens. When they say someone else's words and someone else's experience, something happens. So the elements of somatics and mindfulness that have become a part of this methodology have evolved and changed as we have integrated those things into other aspects of our personal and professional practice. I love how in the past you've used the example of what happens when you take notes of something that you've heard or read and how that sort of imprints upon your brain and your body in a way that is more permanent and becomes part of your identity. I think this speaks to that. Absolutely. And, and you know, the thing that really stood out so much when I first learned about this practice is the way that you, as artists, in all the vulnerability and offering that you bring to this work, you were able to transform a project that did begin with more allied, creative participants in a more performative context into a curriculum in this effort to create more access to the methods within this work. And I can see what a diverse set of challenges that presented and continued to present, like you said, as the context shifted and especially in working communities where the container in which you do your work and get paid to do your work doesn't support that level of personal storytelling and sort of the implications that come along with it, even with the benefits that we experience through radical communication and empathy. But it seems like... And maybe this is like a new thing that's coming, entering into the kind of academic space, but there seemed to be concern about traumatizing the participants mm. and how they or maybe we didn't have the proper kind of tools to, to handle that. I think a lot of our listeners will as well, especially those that work in a DEI role that are willing to entertain projects like these and the other offerings through intermission that are to some degree risky in the type of communication that it encourages because it 
as any one of us can attest, this is not a one and done situation. We have to commit to a series of activations in this work and a long-term sort of commitment to integrate what we're learning here into our daily lives, not just these isolated hours that we spend together in this educational context. And there's something else that you shared with me when we first met as well about how you wouldn't dare to imply that your workshops are a safe space or that any space is a safe space, Mm -hmm. but that it's our job to build brave spaces. And you cultivated a brave space protocol, actually, which became, I believe, sort of one of the first steps in introducing a workshop to a participating group. So I would love for you to share a little bit about that, if you wish. I think a lot of what happened between the two of us in collaboration and what continues to happen is informed by both of our investment in education. Mm -hmm. Both of us are teachers, and I can speak for me at least, but a lot of the work that I have done about advancing my teaching skill has been in professional development trainings that were not supported by either an academic program or a professional setting. So I've been trained in facilitation in lots of different ways. Ways. Both Maya and I have taken workshops that are the same workshops or workshops together, workshops like Piper Anderson's Create Forward Empathic Facilitation Training. I have a community of practice that's called Visual Thinking Strategies, where I've been active and I train others in a facilitation methodology for like six or seven years now. And those are the things that really have informed and improved my classroom teaching. And both of us have done that work on our own over decades of practice as educators, as well as pulling that into our professional practice as artists. And so I think we're very informed by that experience and also all of the theory that goes into that. So Aro and Clemens has a nice essay that you can probably link the free PDF. It's about moving from an idea of safe space towards creating brave space. And that laid a foundation for us to pick up language and do learning and do support like professional development for ourselves so that we were able to shift from a position of being the, you know, directors or the lead artists on a project to being the people who were carefully crafting a container for people to have authentic experience. And I think an education space is that. A classroom space is a place to make community. It's a place to build. And it hinges on diversity. It hinges on everyone bringing their own unique perspective to produce something special together. And we are also very informed by like Adrienne Marie Brown and other emergent strategists thinking about her sort of line that's ringing in my head right now is that there's a conversation in this room that only these people at this time can have. And your job as a facilitator is to find that conversation. So we're very informed by those sort of uh, theorists, Afrofuturists, folks who are doing mindfulness work and pulling that work into movement work. So there are lots of people besides us who are bridging those sort of really almost non-existent gaps between what we do as sort of creative producers and what change we hope happens culturally through our work and community. So we brought all of that to bear on gender power in order to allow it to evolve and change and to remove the sort of ego, which is 
a little bit baked into our visual, my visual art training, Mm -hmm. which is like, okay, you got to be the person and you got to own the rights and you got to get people to sign off on it. And in truth, I think I do all of my best learning in relationships. I do all of my best and deepest learning about like love and intimacy through my friendships and my lovers and my chosen family. And I think I do my best work as an artist in collaboration. I know that I wouldn't have done this project on my own in this way. And I feel really grateful for the durational intimacy of working together both as friends, but also as partners in this idea about designing space for authentic experience. Yeah, and I would add to that too that we have had the great luxury of working over time. I mean, as you were talking, I've been thinking a lot about like the nature of social practice. There's a lot of different forms of social practice. And not everybody really knows what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even think the art world knows what it is or the cultural gatekeepers know what it is. And something I think about all the time, it's definitely like one of those like terrible criticisms that you received as an artist that just like sticks in your craw and you just can't get it out. (laughs) When we were thinking of gender power as a performance and we were pitching it to presenters, I remember a comment being like, well, where's the craft? And it really threw me, but... What it made me look at was the dynamic that was occurring within the groups that we were working with and that that was where the magic was happening. Mm -hmm. It didn't even actually anything to do with Chris and me anymore. Mm -mm. We were just out and the core group was interacting with each other in a way that was different than when we first began and they made a collective. And I believe that many of the friendships that formed continue today. Confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and people also had negative experiences working with us and they decided I will never work with a, you know, able-bodied person again or I will, you know, like mm. those kinds of things. But the thing about social practice, and this isn't all social practice, but some of it is an artist goes into a community, does something that is about agitating and then leaves mm-hmm. and leaves the community behind. You know, maybe they're left with something. But I think sometimes it can be harmful. Mm-hmm. Other times it can bring a community together. But then I don't know all the time if there is a method for accountability and like how you evaluate and how you track it over time. And I know I've, some of my early work, I was, you know, did that as well. Like, you know, going into a place I didn't know anything about. I came in with an idea and I'm going to talk about the environment. I'm going to talk about something that's happening to this community without knowing this community. Sure. So we've had the luxury of, over time, being able to do the project, do it well, do the project, maybe fail a little bit, Mm -hmm. fix it, take notes, just keep evolving it. I mean, when we think about the success or the evaluation of a program from no matter what the framework is, if you're trying to evaluate how successful your DEI initiatives are, or you're trying to evaluate how successful your semester long class was, or if you're trying to evaluate how your museum program is serving your community, evaluate in and of itself has the term value in it. It Mm. it points back to what we value. Mm -hmm. So in our late capitalist collapse, there are certain aspects of money that color those evaluations. What do we value? Care and accountability 
this is not about capital. It's an alternate valuing system. And centering care and accountability is all about difficulty. It's about discomfort, and it's about going into discomfort with trauma-informed pedagogy and ideas about being catalysts for one another's learning, and then also to hold each other in care through accountability, which does not feel good. It might not make people say, yes, I just had a great time mm -hmm. in this thing. I mm -hmm. loved it. Mm -hmm. But there is value in the discomfort. And what we know from what we need to learn around racism in this country is that there's going to be a great deal of difficulty as people are moving through their own evolution and change. So I, I think that comes to bear at other intersections as well. And sexism, for me, there's nothing quite like passing in the world as a woman and then passing in the world as like how I do right now. For your listeners, I am a bald-headed, red-bearded, pocket-sized, I, I would say probably maybe effeminate spectrum. And actually one of our favorite lines from early working together was like, it's not about comfort. Someone asked me about sort of like, are you more comfortable like this? passing around in the world like this. And they, my answer was, it's not about comfort. I'm no more comfortable with how people perceive my body right now mm. as I was before when people were perceiving me as female. I am neither of these things. Mm -hmm. I've taken on a body project to produce something with my body that fails to conform to either strict maleness or femaleness. So the question about perception, the gap between who we are, what our experiences are, and how other people perceive us is very present for our projects, very present in my life. And I think transness kind of points to that permeability and the constructed nature of what it is that we even think when we look at something, mm -hmm. right? So that brings us back to like education modes. You know, we talked about somatics and mindfulness. There's a lot of really good education research about speaking that connects speaking out the ideas that you have in your head or speaking out the experiences that you have in your head are linked to both learning and catharsis. So it just has me bouncing around basically in those experiences and also recognizing that it doesn't feel good. You know, it's not like a feel good thing to like push yourself into your own blind spots. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable. And there's also a lot of discomfort in these it's sort of in these containers of like, okay, professional world or organization or even arts organization or visual art where it's going to feel uncomfortable. And that is required for change. We've become so risk adverse. And I think also these discussions that we're having around race and racism and accountability have made people afraid to speak for fear of being shut down or being pointed at or called out. I mean, and even... Years ago, I invited a white cis man to be part of our performance, and he his greatest fear was that he was going to be scapegoated. And I was like, well, that's not what we do. We just, you know, you're a person, and every person has a gender, and you're part of your body that is important to be in this space. So I do feel like, also as an educator, and also because of the pandemic, where we were all siloed, we've become more and more boxed in and that the kind of free-flowing nature of conversation where people can ask questions, make mistakes, say the wrong thing, and not be vilified mm -hmm. is how can we possibly learn as a society if we're not allowed to ask questions 
And obviously, I'm saying ask questions. I'm not saying like make statements or spout off mm-hmm. some sort of rant. Sure. But if, you know, you come to a space with openness and the willingness to be vulnerable, then we all should be able to just kind of hold that space mm-hmm. together. One of the things that we noticed early on is that somebody would be sharing a particular story, something that happened to them, or a feeling that they had about something that happened to them, and then there would be this sort of nod around the room. And we're doing it now. And so we added this sort of post-it note thing where so if you find yourself nodding, just write down what it is that you're nodding about. Like what's the thing that you connect to about what this person is saying? And we've all had that impulse, you know, when someone's sharing a story and you're like, Oh, that reminds me of the yes. time that it happened to me. Um, and you hold it and, and you hold try it and you're to like, hold it. Yeah, yeah. I want to listen to this person. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, give them their time. So the post-its then became a map. So they became a thematic map that we would take to the wall or some sort of surface and be able to organize that material by theme, mm-hmm. which I also thought and actually did at some point become a choreographic mm-hmm. pattern. You did it virtually too, which was we did that really virtually. effective as well. Yeah, with, we found um, a lot of like free digital tools that really closely resembled the things that we would do in person, which really supported the switch from, you know, yeah. COVID era, like going into the remote environment. So then when Chris mentioned the braiding of text, so, you know, you have like all this text that's been generated. Also, new AI tools were very helpful to transcribe all this text. I mean, that was the other thing we were transcribing by hand or manually, listening and recording. and Hours. Hours. Hours of that. So the bots have helped us there. But then this text gets organized by the themes that were pulled out by the group. And participants can also go through all this generated text and find the points that were the most resonant for them. And then that becomes this sort of score or script, so to speak, that is braided together and removed from authorship. So it belongs to the group. Mm -hmm. And so what that slippage between one body saying the text from another body and where there's crossover and where it's strange, where it's evocative, then there are a series of sometimes from the post-its or the digital whiteboard, words that are dominant, themes that are dominant within the group. And then that becomes, what do we have, like 10 or five Mm -hmm. words that were the building blocks of movement. So say it was a word like joy. Let's, Let's be optimistic. So joy is a word. So we would ask people to meditate in their own spaces, like where the word, say the word joy several times. And when you say it, where does that resonate for you and your body? Does it bubble up from some particular chakra or do you feel it in your foot? Do you feel it in your shoulder? Do you feel it in your spine? Does it make you want to wiggle? And see if you can make a movement generated from this word. And then we would ask them to make this movement in sort of different percentages, which is a shout out to Sandra Parker, the choreographer that we worked with, who was like, do a gesture, but just do it at 10%. Mm-hmm. And then do it at 100%. And then do it at 200%. And that way, we just sort of built a phrase of movement that came from this big chunk of text and got distilled down to five to 10 words that also made a gestural sequence, which when we were doing performances, would become actual choreography. 
And from an actual skill building perspective, I feel like this is taking a rolling pin and going back and forth, back and forth to make an imprint and create more of this embodied awareness and sense of learning about yourself and what happens when you feel. My personal background, unlike Maya, I don't come to making this work from the world of dance. Mm -hmm. I am trained as a ceramic artist, Mm -hmm. so I have not one but two, perhaps otherwise superfluous degrees in (laughs) clay. But my sort of argument is that like material studies and studies an object and just making and it's broadly applicable. Perhaps my rolling pin analogy isn't too far it's off not for too you. Far exactly. Off. Yeah. And yes. precisely because I think the things that draw me to craft-based practices are the things that draw me to do other repetitive tasking in my life, which is that the base of almost any kind of healing practice, religious practice, any practice that's about transcendence and evolution requires repetition. So going to church, you repeat gestures inside of church, you repeat going to church, yoga, you repeat movement phrases, you learn those phrases, you you tone meditation. There's a very strong connection for me through craft-based practices that is about repetition and catharsis. And we do find that there are moments within our gender power methodology where that's really specific, that people are repeating gestures that come up from these themes, and sometimes they are really joyful and positive. I would say a common theme that comes up almost every single time is shame. Shame is a deeply motivating factor. It's a severe feeling for folks, and it's also a political tactic. So we watch people kind of get into discomfort, and we support them with trauma-informed pedagogy, and we act with care and accountability, and we also witness people move into healing spaces through the repetition of movement, its connection to sound, and even the ideation of like a main theme or a topic. And then there's something really special that happens when it gets put together. And so we'll have these moments, even in workshop scenarios, where some of this braided text or some of these ideas that come up that were generated just from conversation start to get partnered with other bodies who are moving. So maybe one person or a couple people might be sort of reading out text and one another half of the group is doing this movement, even in the Zoom space. Mm-hmm something magical happens. And when we set it down and ask, how was that for you as a participant? How did it feel? What's resonating in your body? Those are times when we get kind of the best and most informative feedback is when it's happening right then. And people say, I feel different after doing this. Something shifted while we were doing these things. And all of it is sort of repeated gestures, repetition and catharsis. In the end, like the first few days may be, you know, these very like depthful conversations about personal experiences. But then as we shift towards the end, it just sort of transcends and goes into another space. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like it's just not a training. Mm-hmm. It's a experiential. Right. Well, that leads me then to one of my final questions, which is sort of how you... I mean, obviously, your partnership through this work has been so productive and amazing. And I'm so impressed with how you've been in alliance throughout this whole work and its rise and its just not descent, but, you know, into its next iteration. But how you chose to sort of close the project or, you know, move on from this practice for a time being. 
I personally had to just make a shift to release some things from the past. And some of that is about being a caretaker and the heavy load of admin. As my personal projects have gotten quite expansive and have like multiple components now. And so as I shift to having to administrate those projects, I don't have... <laughs> I don't have the bandwidth to do others. And so it's it's some of it is just about preservation. But also I've always been this kind of person that perhaps probably maybe I don't know to my detriment that when I see the curve going down, I just say let's end it now before it just dissipates. It's like, or mm-hmm. it's maybe it's end on a high note or... My mom always said, leave the party when you're having the most fun. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I used to do that at the clubs too. When I would, I would be like, I used to go to a lot of nightclubs and it would be, you know, maybe five in the morning and I'd be like, ooh, it's getting thin. I suddenly feel the air conditioning. I'm going to go. I'm out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I would say too, I think approaching this work... Like we were so flexible. We have been so flexible, both with each other and with the project. We've moved from people who are sort of directing something and lead artists into people who are mostly administrators. And the truth is, as a visual artist, you are always doing administration for yourself. We are not people who have like gallery representation or a studio where others are working for us. So for all of this time that we've been flexible and nurturing to one another and allowed our project gender power to evolve and change, we found ourselves in different roles that require different things and that also give us different things. What I can say is that there's so much learning, so much softening for me through our process that has deeply informed the way that I operate as an educator, as a community member, as a lover and person in relationship to people. So much learning has come through this. And so much of my learning in those other areas has informed our work together. And I appreciate that about the two of us. We don't have a kind of rigid break between who we are as like, this is, we're going to be this type of artist. And that's how the role that we're going to play. We've been every role in this work. We've Mm -hmm. been performing body. We've been making the sound for the piece. We've been creating the container. We've been, you know, we passed it off to other people. Mm -hmm. We totally, it's not even, you know, it's sort of like we're there and we're helping, but we're the catalyst. So that's been an incredible journey to be on. And honestly, I think that the project has changed so many times. We could have very easily called it something different each time. Each time it could have been something completely different Mm -hmm. and couched under another name. It actually, I do think that this is something that is a little bit different about us. My practice is about It's kind of like, you know, ceramics informed. Like there are performances that I do as an individual artist where the objects and the score of the performance haven't changed in over a decade. Mm -hmm. The fact is we're all changing all the time. We're constantly becoming who we are. This is not specific to trans experience. But we love to like put Mm -hmm. a little bracket around it and be like, it started here and it finished here. I mean, anybody who's talked to me about my transness who's not like a close person has likely asked me, when did you know? When did you change? Mm. Are you better? Are you happier? Like those are core questions that people have in their mind. And it's no wonder because that's what we see when trans and non-binary folks are interviewed and a lot of interest in genitals. Mm. 
but it is my working methodology. It's kind of like pottery. Like the potter goes into the studio, sits down at the wheel. The first thing that they throw is never the best thing. And they're probably going to continue throwing cups and bowls and plates for the rest of their days. That part of repeating something as a way to skill up really informs the way that I work. And so oftentimes I look at my own personal practice and I'm like, there's no new work. And that's because I, some pieces I'm going to continue doing in the same, probably a very similar way for like all the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I think of the two of us, I'm more inclined to be like, it'll grow and change. It'll evolve and be something completely different. We could have many times in the past, whatever, seven or eight years, changed what it was that we were doing, changed the name of it, reformatted it, called it something new. But we chose to keep it under that umbrella and sort of let it evolve on its own, really not try to control it or manipulate what it would become. Mm -hmm. And it's also a great time for us to say, okay, here we are in a political climate that is even more hostile mm -hmm. legislatively, but, you know, it's cyclical. We're seeing a lot of the same things over and over and over again. And, and even if we expand that lens to think about how cyclical, you know, it's always the same tactic and the crosshairs just move slightly. So it's queer people in general, it's gender deviance, it's HIV positive folks in the 90s and 2000s, right? We've seen these tactics politically be used over and over and over again. And it's just sort of that little target shifts slightly. But almost all of the times that that target has shifted, it's focused in on some kind of thing that doesn't fit in the paradigm of colonization as an ongoing project, which includes mm. capitalism. It includes sex and gender binary as an organizing principle to create a hierarchy of bodies. It has to do with racism. It has to do with ableism. It has all of those things sort of inside of it. They're tethered together. And all of those sort of terrible practices are required for continuing that project of colonization. Decolonization, you know, is a, is a core of my individual practice. It's a core of our practice as gender power. It's the way that we approach our teaching. So we could have many times allowed this project to shift, to change, to be something new and to sort of hit the reset button on it. But we've allowed it to evolve and change over time. And at this political moment, you know, it may be a little bit counterintuitive. Oh, my gosh, like it's the most hostile environment for trans and gender nonconforming people and folks who do any type of dressing up. You know, it's like, okay, Comic-Con, what are you going to do? Like, stop people from, I don't know. I, it's it's wild to me. Mm -hmm. But it's not the first time that something wild like this has been launched as a way to sort of fear monger and control populations. So it may be a little counterintuitive to think, oh, you're about to set down a project that's trans-led, that's feminist, that's queer, that's intersectional at a time when we're under the greatest duress and there's a great need. And I think it represents a moment for us to say, okay, we have allowed that project to grow grow and to change, to evolve, it is a great time to kind of say, all right, that was an arc, you know, almost a decade of practicing under that same umbrella. And what is needed now? Mm -hmm. And what have we gleaned through this work together? And I think in particular, our work with others, mm -hmm. right? So going back to that first table discussion, you know, going to get coffee together and being like, oh, we like each other. We're going to be friends. And then actually we're going to make a project out of it, you know, shocker <laughs> for both of our very A-type personalities. 
and we're in a different climate right now and it's almost a decade later and it's a it's real i'm curious actually because i feel like we've done so much growing and changing individually together as collaborators and just as individual artists our practices have grown and changed so it's a great time to say wow we have been so supported in our own care and accountability like we have gone through so many different aspects of accountability process inside mm-hmm. of this that has really informed the way that I am in relationship, in interpersonal relationships, professional relationships, is a great time to evaluate for ourselves. What did we value from this? What of value follows us? And where we're finding ourselves now, what could be next? This work has been so extraordinarily generous. I think that it makes perfect sense that it experiences this phase that you're describing. And I hope more than anything that this conversation and those that have benefited from your learnings can take on more of this work and especially allies of the queer community to absorb more responsibility than they had before to do this work and to embrace this idea of softening and becoming And for our listeners that are devoted to DEI practices, very much so to align themselves deeper with that concept of becoming and embracing the change that is always happening and allowing that to be something we can work with and just continue to evolve from. There's no sort of finish line. So thank you guys both so much for being here today and for just so generously sharing about your personal life, your friendship, this project. I've been so inspired by it and I know our listeners will be too. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jade. And I hope our listeners enjoyed the conversation today. Uh, You're welcome to check out our website, www.intermission.space, to learn more about the projects on our platform. And be well. Thank you. Thank you.